do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What does that look like if we apply it to how we treat refugees and undocumented immigrants in 2019? Hey, my name is Steve Allred. On today's podcast, I talk with my friend Fabian Carbaggio. Fabian is a high school history teacher and also a college professor. He currently serves as the president of NARLA West, a chapter of the North American Religious Liberty Association, an advocacy group that defends religious freedom and freedom of conscience. Fabian is passionate about politics, the founding of American democracy, and theology. In this conversation, we try to answer the question, what does it look like to live by the golden rule when it comes to how we treat refugees and immigrants? Christians here in America are polarized over what to do with undocumented immigrants. Fabian, why should a follower of Jesus care about this issue? Well, Steve, I always think about the Lord's Prayer. Um, The most important part of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. I think as Christians, some people have the misconception that Our mission is to preach the gospel so that we can all go home, go to heaven, and live in a perfect world where there are no borders, there are no immigrants, there aren't undesirable people, there aren't marginalized people of our society. Mm -hmm. So we just need to kind of, you know, expedite that process. But we forget that the Lord's Prayer says, you know, thy kingdom come here on earth, and we have people with needs. And we have Mm -hmm. the privilege, the opportunity to live in a country where uh, there are opportunities and where I don't have any any wants or needs. I have shelter over my head. My children have food on the table. But that's not the story uh, in the rest of America. You know, one of the poorest countries in the world is is Haiti. And they're not that far away from, from many parts of America. And it didn't help that an earthquake decimated their entire their entire country. So what do we do? We turn our backs. You know, we have the option of turning our backs on them. Now we have another crisis in Honduras and places like El Salvador and places where the United States government from the 1980s uh, onward have toppled governments mm. with the with the sole purpose of trying to control their economies and trying to control the entire region. Um, you know, kind of an extension of the Monroe Doctrine of no one interfering with Latin America or the Americas in general, and then also uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, corollary. So a lot of people don't understand the history and the context of why people are trying to come to the United States. But to answer your question, I think the polarization is just an extension of uh, how polarized Americans are politically. Um, you know, there's there's people who believe certain facts and don't accept other facts because it doesn't resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And um, we really are at, uh, you know, we're at square one with the immigration issue. I don't think we've educated people enough on it. I don't think enough people really know exactly how it works and what U.S. policy actually is. You know, Americans, I think we do tend to live in a bubble here oftentimes. 
um, you know, you go to other countries and you um, realize that some of these folks, especially in Europe, you know, the countries are smaller and so they seem to travel more, you know, outside of their own nation. Whereas Americans oftentimes, you know, we'll just stay here in America and the United States and we don't really travel necessarily um, to go see what the rest of the world, the rest of the world is like. You've described some of the conditions in these other countries and, um, and that was a question I had for you is, okay, so we hear about, you know, the, the caravans, right. Coming from the South supposedly, uh, to our Southern border. And that's another issue as to whether they, there actually are, you know, thousands and thousands of people wanting to get across. But, um, you know, who are these people? Why are they wanting to come here? I think you've answered part of that, but maybe tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, these people that want to come to America. Right. Well, um, Honduras is the most violent country in the world where there isn't a war going on. So if you make a list of the most violent places in the world right now, you probably have Syria because there's a war going on, probably Afghanistan, other volatile, unstable places in the Middle East. Honduras is just a regular uh, Central American country that has been overrun by gangs. So you have regular people who are seeking refuge, right? They're they're trying to they're coming in a caravan for several reasons. One, to protect their women and children. If you travel in large groups, it is less likely that those vulnerable people will will be, you know, victims of, of the terrible things that could happen in a journey that long. Mm-hmm. Second of all, they do want to call attention to their plight in the media as much as possible. And it is uh, erroneous to, to state that it is America's only responsibility. There are many countries that are taking these refugees in. Mexico has processed thousands of them. Um, you know, they, they follow through their, their, their whole process and they, they were able to, uh, offer asylum to, to many of these, uh, people, but some of them don't even want to stay in Mexico. You know, you can't force them to stay there if they don't want to stay there. A lot of them, their, their entire, uh, purpose is to get to the border, get to our border, turn themselves in and have the refugee process, uh, done. Now, this has been U.S. immigration policy for decades. We did it with the Cubans. If they were able to reach Miami Beach, uh, you know, they were able to get on U.S. soil, then they would be accepted as refugees. We did that from the 1980s up until, you know, early 2000s. We did it with the Vietnamese people who were fleeing Vietnam, um, Koreans, uh, all kinds of countries that um, that where the U.S. has "quote unquote" interests or military uh, military presence or, or some kind of conflict, and so it, it's it seems to me like a, like a complete change of policy to tell these people that the refugee laws don't apply to them because they come from a specific country or a certain country. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are trying to escape violence, uh, trying to escape the threat of, of kidnappings, of uh, murders, so forth and so on. Also, there is the fact that the United States has controlled the economies of most Central American countries for the past few decades. I do an experiment with my students 
where on the first day of school, I'm trying to show them the importance of, uh, you know, how government really permeates every single aspect of our lives. And I ask my students to simply look at the tag on their clothing. Just if you're wearing a t-shirt, you know, find out where your t-shirt was made. If you're wearing pants and you can kind of see the tag, whatever article of clothing you're wearing, find out where it was made. And then I make a list on the board. And usually out of 30 students, maybe I'll have one who is wearing one thing that was made in the United States. But even their shoes, right? You're wearing a pair of Nikes, made in Malaysia. Made in, you're wearing a pair of Adidas, made in uh, Vietnam. Made in Honduras, made in Mexico, made in the Philippines, made in El Salvador. So then I ask them, well, why is that? Well, none of these countries have, you know, child labor laws, which we do in the United States. None of these countries have, oh, you're working 14-hour days, we're going to give you benefits, you get 15-minute breaks, you get an hour of lunch, it's all paid for. You get dental, you get health. They don't have any of that. So we are basically turning the rest of the world into slaves so that us Americans can afford to or buy cheap, cheap goods. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's going to pay $100 for just a regular T-shirt. No one's going to want to pay more than $40 for a hoodie, which is what it would cost if it was made in America because we have labor laws and anti-child labor laws. So we are exploiting the, the rest of our continent, and then we ask ourselves, well, why are these people wanting to leave there? You know, why... Mm-hmm. You know, no one consumes more than Americans. Americans consume, you know, 75% of the garbage in the world is basically produced in the United States. We're consumers. We're excessively a consumer um, society. So someone's got to, you know, supply and demand. It's a basic capital, uh, you know, capitalism, uh, capitalistic principle. But people have to make the goods that Americans want to buy. So that is the way that we have set the rules for the game. And if you've never been to any, and you're right, Americans don't travel much either. You know, 80 to 85% of Americans have never really left the country. So we think we know how the world works. We, we think we understand and we think we know how other people feel, but we don't. And all it takes is one little mission trip to Central America, go to an orphanage, and anyone with a heart will will realize that um, that these these are our fellow brothers and sisters. These are our fellow children, mm-hmm. and we can't just ignore them and leave them leave them out in the cold. Mm-hmm. I have two kids, and anytime I I think of children dying of hunger or children not having parents or children being out on the streets or being abused in any way, shape or form, mm. it completely breaks my heart because yeah. I think of my own children. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I, I know what you mean about that when I became a parent and, uh, and I would look at Facebook and see, you know, picture of a starving child somewhere. It, it, it had a different impact on me than before I was a parent. So and that's why, and that's that's why Jesus said, you know, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done mm-hmm. unto me. I think he's appealing to, he's trying to appeal to the fact that you know the, the compassion that some humans can feel. You know, if you have a heart, mm-hmm. think about the least of these, right? And then whatever you do to them, you're doing to Jesus. 
And, and so even beyond that, what, what ought to be a basic, you know, human response uh, to suffering, um, you're saying that we as Americans, um, whether it's been in our generation or in the past, are responsible to some extent for the economic conditions in these countries that have led to violence and, and war, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what do you think we're afraid of here? Why don't we want these people to come? They're trying to flee and we're, we're saying we yeah. don't want you here. Well, there's a basic, um, you know, there's a basic concept of the other, you know, we don't, we don't trust people who, even if we live in the safest neighborhood in America, if you live in the nice area of the suburbs, we still, we're, we're, we still, we're still hesitant when someone from a different color or a different religion or even, even, you know, a different political ideology. Oh my gosh, you know, there they go putting their lawn sign. I didn't know they were from that political party. Now I can't trust them. So we just, as Americans, are mm. just very distrustful because we, I think it's a cultural, I think it's a cultural problem. And a lot of it is fueled by, you know, a lot of media stories that, you know, the, if the media doesn't, doesn't show stories or portray, uh, you know, journalistic uh, reports that that have conflict and fear and threats, then people aren't going to watch. You know, if you say, right. yeah. you know, tune in at 11 p.m., we're going to show you a picture of beautiful kittens. Mm-hmm. No one's going to tune in. But if you say, oh, there's these, you know, immigrants that have been caught, they were trying to commit a crime or do whatever. So we hear these stories, and a lot of Americans uh, begin to to fear that you know we're being attacked from all sides. That uh, we we have to have some kind of parameters to keep my children safe, to keep my neighborhood safe. Uh, but they don't realize that it, it could be that person that goes to your church. It could be it could be your neighbor. You know, for me, it could be my students. You know, if I mm-hmm. if I had a fear of the other or a fear that people that come from other places of the world are actually going to be something bad for me, then I, I wouldn't even get out of bed, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of it is fueled by the media. And then the other part is we already discussed, um, if, if we think that America is all that there is because we never left the country and we've never traveled, then that kind of, you know, that's the narrative that we form, you know, that's the only paradigm that we are aware of. Now I've traveled to to South America. That's where I'm originally from. I've been to Mexico several times. I've traveled to Europe very recently, and uh, I can tell you that <clears throat> not everybody's like that. Um, you know, you you see things in, in England, for example. You you see a higher presence of, for example, Muslims, and you don't get a sense that there's tension or that there's. Um, People fear them. You see them in the subways. You see them in the buses. No one looks at them strangely. No one treats them differently. A lot of them work at, you know, a lot of them are airport workers. Um, you know, they work in the airport security. And you get the sense that, for you know, in a way, they, they have sort of evolved in a way that uh, Americans have not been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw open open borders. Really, when you travel from Belgium to the Netherlands to 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 Austria to the Czech Republic to Germany, 
to Switzerland, you never know what country you're in until you see that the signs are in a different language. You don't have to stop at a border or a fence or a wall. And these people move about freely. And it's a very beautiful thing that you can travel and see all these places. And, and they're culturally different and they speak different languages. And they don't have this fear that there's going to be a caravan, you know, caravan of Belgians coming into the Netherlands and, you know, camping out or whatever. And I think what they've, what they've done is they've, they've created a sort of economic opportunity and economic equality where people from Austria don't really need to go and migrate into Germany or people who live in Switzerland don't really have a reason to, to leave Switzerland. And to me, that's the true definition of, of patriotism. You know, we shouldn't force it. We, we shouldn't force people to kneel down or stand up or put their hand on their heart. Patriotism is something that should come naturally, and it comes naturally. You, you love your country when you begin to see how great it is. And the biggest sign of how great it is is that people can travel freely in and out of your country because that's what you have to offer, you know, a welcoming hand. And, and that's interesting because I think I hear some Americans saying, you know, if we let them come in here, they're going to take our jobs. And, and what's implied by that is that, you know, it will change our way of life. Um, the reality yeah. is, of course, and I think you can talk more about this. Um, actually, we don't want to do the jobs that many immigrants coming here are willing to do. In fact, you know, you hear the stories after uh, immigration agents um, come in and crack down and arrest a bunch of people in you know some communities, and suddenly the farms have no laborers uh, to pick the tomatoes or to care for the chickens or whatever. And and yet most um, people that have been born here in America, you know, wouldn't do these jobs. And again, it, it kind of goes back to this concept: like, what are we really afraid of? And I think you're right. We've we've succumbed to this media narrative that these are evil people coming to kill us. They're going to come take your jobs. But really, some of that's based on a lot of, you know, false premises. What, you know, what about the economic impact of immigrants here in America? Well, the the fact is, Steve, that um, we need immigrants to mm -hmm. make an economy as big as America's to function properly. And, you know, we've, we've heard the debate over, you know, raising the minimum wage. Some states are doing it, but there's, we're not really raising the, the federal minimum wage at the rate of inflation. We've, it's always mm -hmm. been behind inflation. Mm -hmm. And uh, one way to do that is to actually bring in immigrants that work minimum wage jobs. They're not going to take an American's job because... An American has a huge advantage over an immigrant. And you know what that is? You speak English. <laughs> so now you can get a job. Let's say that you were working, uh, you know, a McDonald's, uh, flipping burgers. An immigrant comes over and says, oh, I can do that job for whatever they're paying me. I'll take, well, I'll take the lowest pay possible. So they're not going to take your job if you're an American citizen who speaks English. Now you get promoted to maybe cashier or you get promoted to shift manager. You'll see an increase in your pay and your, in your wages because they have to pay you more because you have a skill that they don't have. You can talk to the public. You can communicate with people. So what, what a lot of Americans don't know is that immigrant labor actually raises the wages on actual Americans that were here before them. 
they've they've done a study that you know NPR uh, published it a couple of weeks ago, where they 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 actually studied you know wages and how much people how much money people make, and they were able to then demonstrate that because of immigration, uh, not in spite of it, but because of immigration, uh, wages tend to go up for people that have that simple skill of speaking English, and you know maybe maybe a couple other skills, but uh, we don't. We don't want to be a hotel maid or a custodian or a janitor or a landscaper. I mean, these are all very honorable jobs. These are, these are very good jobs and we need people to do them. But I think the, the average American who was born here and speaks English probably wants a job with, with higher pay and good benefits. And you simply can't get those jobs if there isn't competition for the lower wages jobs. Mm. And so, you know, it makes us better. Like, I mean, you know, if, if someone comes into my work as a teacher and has somehow they have better skills than I do, or, or they have certain, they know how to do certain things that I don't know how to do. Well, they made themselves a little more marketable, didn't they? So mm-hmm. I either have to be better at competing for whatever position I want, or I have to kind of settle for, for what I have. And I think if, you know, the people that are complaining about immigrants taking their jobs maybe don't have that much motivation to begin with. Also, Steve, people don't know this, but immigrants do pay taxes. Mm-hmm. They pay state taxes. They pay sales taxes. Anytime they buy anything, they're paying taxes. If they buy a house, they're paying property taxes. They pay county taxes. They pay federal taxes. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, you, you can probably get away from INS, but you can't get away from IRS, <laughs> right? We no know one can hide. No one can hide from Uncle Sam. Believe me, if people were not paying taxes, they would be in jail. I mean, it's as simple, it's as, simple as that. There's no one hiding from, from the tax man. Mm-hmm. And also, a lot of people don't know that immigrants... Um, those who are working um, with with illegal documents or, or false documents, they're actually leaving billions of dollars in the Social Security fund mm-hmm. because they can't claim those funds once they retire. So we see now, I have a friend who's a manager, so I mean, this is not just anecdotal, it's, it's actually factual. I have a friend who works as a, as a supervisor, as a manager at the Social Security Administration, and he tells me that every year there's billions of dollars that are left unclaimed because these immigrants are not entitled to them, even though they worked for the, you know, they had their money deducted mm-hmm. and put into Social Security for, you know, 20 years, 30 years that they work in the United States undocumented. So, you know, in many ways, immigrants are helping to shape our economy and they're, they're putting money in and not. Uh, not necessarily taking money out. Um, as for the argument, you know, in my in my field of work as a as a public school teacher, the argument that we are educating people for free, and that you know, that in that way they're they're taking our resources. Um, I don't see it that way at all. Uh, let's just say that if we banned immigrants from our schools, or we told ch- children, you know what. You can't, if you're not documented, you can't come to school. We're not going to teach you English. We would have major social problems by not educating our youth, particularly not helping immigrants assimilate and learn English. And then also, 
there would be way less public education jobs, which would uh, adversely uh, hurt the economy big time, right? Now you'd have less teachers, less people making money, less people spending money. Mm-hmm. So any way you look at it, uh, Im- immigrants are a, a healthy thing for the U.S. economy. So I hear Christians, some Christians saying, well, hey, listen, if you're here and you're undocumented, you're here illegally, you are going against what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Romans 13 that you should be subject to the laws of the land. Um, so here's the question for you, Fabian. Should Christians abide by the law? And what about this argument that because undocumented immigrants are breaking the law, that they need to be prosecuted or you know, at, at very least sent back to their, their country of origin? Okay, well, first of all, it's very simple to say, you know, people who are here illegally are breaking the law. It's very simple to say that without actually understanding immigration policy and immigration law. Uh, I tell people my, my personal story. Okay? My parents came here on a, on a visa. Uh, their visa expired. Then they were given, they were given uh, work permits. This is when I was, I was young. I was a kid when, when my parents came to the United States. And then all of a sudden, my dad applied for a for a permanent residence. When he applied for permanent residence, his paperwork was lost or not processed or whatever it was. There was a window of time where it needed to be processed, and that didn't happen, probably because INS was backlogged like they still are today. They don't have enough resources. They don't have enough employees. They don't have enough judges. So my dad, instead of getting his permanent residence card in the mail, he gets a letter of deportation. Now, this was after we'd been living here for about 15 years. We really had nowhere to go. Back to, I was all, you know, um, getting ready to go to my first year of college. I felt more American than, than from any other culture. And basically, my dad said, well, we're going to ride this out and see if they change the laws, see if, see if anything happens. There are millions of people in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one day you're legal, the next day you're not legal, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, one day you're documented, the next day you're not documented. Some, some people can fix their situation, other people not so much. And so there are millions of people who are in limbo. And we can blame the federal government bureaucracy. We can blame the backlog. You know, we, there's many, many things we can blame except for the individual who attempted to do things the legal way, who attempted to file paperwork in a legal way. And, um, you know, so I can't call any of those people, including my family, you know, lawbreakers. As for the refugees that are coming from Central America, again, they are trying to follow the law. And the law says that if they are coming from a violent country seeking refuge, that the United States has to process them, which is basically a vetting process. Who are you? Where do you come from? How many members are in your family? And then find some temporary you know, situation for them until things get better in their nation or, or if you know, they become uh, uh, permanent residents. So, you know, every situation is different. Every individual is different. Uh, But it's very, to me, it's very oversimplified to just say, you're breaking the law. 
you need to you need to pay for that. Mm. Now, as a Christian, of course, I teach my children, and uh, and I believe in following following the laws. But what about the Christians, you know, in the 1960s who were part of the civil rights movement? And they were, they were Christians. I mean, their leader was a reverend. All their leaders were reverends and preachers. And they were preaching from, from the, from the pulpit to defy segregation laws mm-hmm. and to defy, uh, you know, the bus situation in, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama to defy the, the unjust and unfair rules that, um, you know, that were that were permeating American society. So I'm sure there were many Christians at that time in the 1960s and 1950s who were probably on the side of we're Christians and we must follow the law. You know, even if the laws can be kind of unfair and unjust, we have to be on the side of the law. Well, I say I say you don't. I say that if you're a real follower of Christ, uh, and you know why. <laughs> Why have people forgotten that Jesus Christ was arrested because he broke the laws, mm. right? He broke his society's rules. He broke his society's laws, and they had to make an example out of him because of that. It wasn't anything else that Jesus did. They didn't care if he was a madman or, or a liar or just a very charismatic person that had followers. None of that bothered anyone. But when he challenged the authorities, when he challenged the status quo, this is when they began to ask for his crucifixion. So I think that as Christians, we need to be a little bit more radical and we need to think a little bit more outside the box. And we will be put in uncomfortable situations. I think if, as a Christian, I don't feel uncomfortable and I don't get out of my comfort zone to try to think of, of people who are marginalized and people who are oppressed and how to help them, then, you know, maybe I would be one of those people yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Or maybe I would be one of those people hosting the civil rights leaders or, you know, mm. yelling obscenities at children trying to integrate their high school. Wow. So there are laws. And there are unjust laws, and I think Christians should always stand on the side of justice, no matter what. You know, it, it strikes me as a bit hypocritical, maybe more than just a bit, uh, when I hear Christians saying, "Oh, these people—they're coming here; they're undocumented, and, and and they're, you know, basically violating what the Bible tells them to do—that is, to obey the laws of the land." And I think, you know. Uh, is it true that you never break the law? I mean, come on. We've all broken the speed limit, right? Um, right. It, it seems to me that some people celebrate, you know, uh, we have people in leadership in our government who, you know, celebrate when they can get away with evading taxes or, um, right. you know, some other thing that we all don't like in our country, which, you know, a lot of people don't like paying taxes, right? And so right. it seems like we're fixated on, you know, those people who are here undocumented, not so much because they're breaking the law, even though we're using that maybe as the excuse, but again, we're going back to those other things that we're afraid of. You know, the other, uh, they're coming here, right. they're going to hurt us, you know, they're going to take our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so you're advocating, and I think this is, this is, you know, it goes back to a misinterpretation in many ways of Romans chapter 13. You're advocating civil disobedience when 
the laws of the land basically conflict with what God is is asking us to do. Um, and if you read Romans 13 right. carefully, Romans 13 actually talks about laws that are just. And it says, you know, when you have a, a ruler who's enforcing a just law, you should obey that. But it, it doesn't necessarily apply when um, the laws of the land are not just and when they conflict with the law of God. And, and I think, you know, so I, that's, that's a really, I think, a, an important takeaway here is that I think we as Christians ought to be asking ourselves, hey, what is the right thing to do? That's the first question. And, right. and, and then we work from that, that standpoint. And then, you know, who's going to tell my, my parents, you know, who's going to go back in time, um, you know, uh, it was a long time ago, but 30, 32 years, who's going to go back in time uh, 32 years ago and tell my parents, you, you know, God doesn't want you to seek a better life for, for you and your children. Mm. God isn't guiding you to this other place. Uh, we need to think of immigration and Im- immigration waves as the most natural and common and normal human behavior that has ever existed on this planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the people of Israel were fleeing Egypt, what were they? If not a bunch of refugees and a bunch of immigrants, mm. where, w- where were they going? They were a displaced people. Why were they displaced? It was a power struggle between, you know, who had the authority and who was oppressed and powerless and who was guiding them, who was parting the sea for them. So we're going to tell the millions of immigrants that come to our to our shores and come to our borders. Oh, you know what? God wanted us to have this land, but you not so much. Mm. You know, now we're really now we're really getting into dangerous territory where we are second-guessing God's purpose for every human and every individual, which he created in his own image, right? So if we forget that immigrants immigrants were created in God's image, Mm -hmm. uh, we're, you know, I feel bad for those people because, uh, you know, we're really going into some dangerous waters, uh, forgetting that fact and forgetting that God can guide, uh, you know, someone from El Salvador to come and make a difference in America. Someone like me from Uruguay to come and make a difference in America. Um, God has a plan for every single one of his children. And I don't have to understand it. I don't have to, you know, uh, know everything about it. I might not understand it. I might be confused about it. And that's why I talk about, you know, coming out of my comfort zone and, and kind of why that's a radical Christian teaching. Um, you know, we really, we really can't put thoughts in God's mind. I think he knows what he's doing rather well. We can join them, though. You know, we can join the work of compassion, the work of humanism, the work of loving our neighbor, the work of welcoming the stranger. We could totally be co-ambassadors and uh, helpers of, of, of the gospel. How can we do that? Let's talk about some practical ways that we as Christians can do justice when it comes to helping the refugees, the oppressed, those who are fleeing violence or um, economic um, injustice in their own countries. What are some practical things that 
that you oh, and I and our listeners could do? Let's start with the let's start with the most uncomfortable ones. Let's watch the things that we consume, mm. right? Uh, normally, we try to consume things that are healthy for us or that won't harm us, but we don't worry about who else or what else it is harming. Oh wow! Um, you know, sometimes you, we go buy some coffee. I, mean, I like uh, Trader Joe's sells coffee, and they tell you that it is. Um, it's, it's what is, what's the term that they fair use? Trade. I think they say it's fair trade, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm like, what does that mean? What does fair trade mean? That means that if it comes from El Salvador or from Guatemala, which are poor countries, they are paying these people fair trade wages. And that's why that coffee is going to cost me a little bit more than other coffee that I might buy. Mm-hmm. But I'm more than willing to pay it because it is it is being uh, grown in a farm where <clears throat> none of those workers are being exploited where none of the people who work in that farm um, are, you know, basically slaves or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What if we, what if we make choices about the things that we eat and the clothes that we buy and the coffee that we consume that doesn't exploit our neighbors, right? Right. That doesn't take advantage of others. That's one thing that we can do, but you know, makes us uncomfortable. Another thing I've been involved uh, in recently has been to actually have immigration seminars and we go to different churches and um, we provide information about what rights immigrant people have. And then also to kind of talk about some of the issues that we've been talking about tonight, um, that it's not that simple. Immigration laws are very complex. We try to bring attorneys uh, with us that specialize in immigration law mm-hmm. to um, to kind of just give information and, and let people know about the process and and to help people you know help immigrants become uh, documented. Um, you know, I always tell people, well, the only difference between the Fabian from thirty years ago or twenty five years ago is that I, that Fabian was undocumented. But now I have a piece of paper that says that I'm documented. So for some people, I will have more value as a human, but I'm still the same person, mm. right? And so if we, if, we, if we talk so much about, oh, there's so many undocumented people and they're breaking the law, well, let's help them not be undocumented. Let's help them resolve their problems and resolve their issues. Um, that's one thing we can do. We can, uh, we can also just work from a humanitarian standpoint and uh, mentor, you know, immigrant families and help them navigate and help them, you know, guide their, you know, guide their journey through, through what it means to live in America. I remember when we first came here, Steve, um, the, the first toys that I ever had as an eight year old immigrant kid from South America were toys that people were tossing out and throwing in the garbage. So my dad had a, a paper route and he was kind of like a sub paper route guy. I mean, that, you know, when you're an immigrant, you'll take any job that anyone will give you. And I remember, uh, we, we basically, we went on the, the Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve. I went with him on his route. Um, and then on new year's day, you know, that, that morning, and I remember just finding toys that people were throwing out in the garbage, perfectly good toys, undamaged, um, unbroken toys oh, that yeah. American children, 
That was your introduction to America. <laughs> our, that was my introduction to America. Our waste, yeah. And, and I couldn't understand it. And I'm like, Dad, why are people throwing away, why are kids throwing away their toys? And he's like, well, they probably got new ones, mm-hmm. so they don't want these toys. And I had a collection of little cars and little G.I. Joes and things that people were throwing out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it just kind of blew my mind, right? That, that Well, anyway, um, so, so my point is, you know, to be able to, to maybe mentor, uh, you know, an immigrant family that, that, that we know that lives in our neighborhood or that goes mm-hmm. to our church or that we come in contact with, you know, we're going to learn more from that experience and our children are going to learn more from that experience than, than actually them feeling like, like we're helping them. I That's mean, it's going to help idea. us to become better humans. Mm. And just making those connections, and, um, and a lot of people forget that if the Christian church is growing at all in America, it is because of immigration. Mm-hmm. It is because people want to go to a place where there's community, where there's fellowship, where there's potluck, where there's other caring Christians that aren't going to attack them or yell terrible things at them. Um, and then, of course, you know, extending you know, using our church as a, as a flat, as an agency of grace and as an agency of, of hope, we can organize, um, you know, organize mission trips to, to Central America. You know, as I stated before, visit an orphanage, go give them your time, go give them your resources, go over there, go to them, see how they live. And it's going to change our entire landscape of how we feel about immigration. Thanks for joining us today. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at DoJusticeNow. You can also tweet your questions or suggested topics for a future podcast conversation to us there. Or send your questions or ideas by email to DoJusticeNow at iCloud.com.